since it's been 11 years, it's good that we are doing a pictorial directory soon, and you'll be able to sign up for that. And then sometime, oh, maybe in May, uh, we will receive our actual pictorial directories. And I know the first thing that you will do when you get that pictorial directory, you probably do too. You'll open it up and look for your own picture. Uh, everybody does it. Now, you will have seen the picture that will be in the directory before. In fact, you will have approved of that picture that's in the directory, but you will still look if, uh, at the picture, maybe in hope that it's better than what you <laughs> expected. Most people, uh, they don't like to look at pictures of themselves, do they? You always, you're drawn to it in any group shot, where am I and how do I look? That's the question that you are asking about yourself. Most people don't like to look at pictures of themselves. They don't like to listen to the sound of their own voice and they don't like to look at pictures of themselves. Well, uh, if that's uh, true, you should think for a moment about a novel by Oscar Wilde called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, It was Wilde's only novel. He was uh, first published in 1890. And as the story begins, Dorian Gray is uh, a very handsome young man. He's being painted by his friend named Basil Hallward. Now, Wilde uses the word beautiful to describe Dorian Gray. He is a stunningly attractive young man. In fact, having the opportunity to paint him changes Basil's life. Uh, Dorian Gray is his muse, and and, uh, Basil's artwork takes on a whole new flavor because he features Dorian Gray in his paintings. As the story progresses, Dorian Gray decides he commits himself as a young man to living a life of pleasure. He wants to be happy. He wants to experience all of the good feelings, the good sensual pleasures that life has to offer. And he knows, oh, he knows, that one of the reasons that so many doors for pleasure are open for him is because of how handsome he is. And he expresses this wish in, this, in the opening pages of the novel. He says, I wish that this painting of me would age instead of me. And to his surprise, that is actually what happens. Throughout the story, uh, Dorian Gray never loses his handsome features. He never wrinkles. He never grays. Uh, And he notices when he looks at, at the picture that as he descends deeper and deeper into pleasure, into evil pleasures, sexual immorality, treachery, thievery, blackmail, murder, he notices that he stays the same, his face, but the picture ages and becomes deformed and wrinkled. He, he can do whatever he wants, and almost instantly the picture has, has a new wrinkle, a new deformity, a, a new lesion. His, his sins are painted there on the canvas uh, for him. Not in his own life, not in his own face, but there in that, that portrait. Oscar Wilde was, was far from a Christian, and he would probably be amused to know that we're talking about his story this morning. But whether he knew it or not, the portrait of Dorian Gray actually coincides with what the Bible says about the impact of the evil that we impose on one another. Not as directly, not in the one-to-one correspondence way of Dorian Gray, but there is still correspondence. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8. If you have your note sheet this morning and you want to follow along, I want to read a verse or two from Romans chapter 8. Look what the Apostle Paul says. He wrote, 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God himself, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now, the text says that creation was subjected to frustration and in bondage to decay. That is, in response to human evil, God has written across the face of creation a physical representation of our moral decay. The Bible tells us a lot of things about creation, and one of the things it tells us is that that creation itself testifies to God's glory. We see the sunset, we see the mountains, and we say, ah, God is glorious. But creation also testifies to our spiritual corruption. Uh, We had an illness sweep through our house this week. It was a fast-moving infectious virus. Uh, The most potent effects of it lasted about 24 hours. Everyone got it in turn. Uh, It was probably not as bad, frankly, as my moaning and groaning would seem to suggest, but no one was having a good time with this. While I was laying there in bed, I I thought about these verses in Romans. I am experiencing here in my body a, a representation of what my anger, my pride, my self-centeredness is like spiritually. You can think about this in a large scale or a small scale. When you see the next news story about an earthquake or a forest fire or a hurricane, or when you hear someone you know has cancer or a baby is born with some grievous defect, here is a physical representation of the evil that resides in every human heart. Paul doesn't draw the same direct connection that Oscar Wilde did. There's not a one-to-one correspondence, but the principle is the same. God paints across creation the consequences of our choices. If, If we could really see your real picture, your real portrait, I wonder what it would look like. God uses creation to show us that, and he also uses the Bible. We have been seeing over the last several weeks this stark portrayal during our study of the book of Leviticus. The first few chapters of the book of Leviticus are devoted to the sacrificial system. In order to worship God, this is his plan for his people. This is how an unholy people could worship a holy God. And over and over again, there are these reminders of our fact that, that uh, the fact that God is holy and we are not. He is good and we are not. He is perfect and we are not. If we want to worship the same God that these Israelites did in, in the book of Leviticus, we have to confront this same evil. Actually, probably the word confront is not... Uh, the word to use. Uh, Leviticus diagnoses our problem, but it prescribes too. It tells us what is wrong, and it tells us how God has provided for what is wrong. And if you want to know this God who is holy, who is distinct, who is uh, different from us in beauty and in goodness and in wisdom and in love, you have to listen carefully to what he says about who we are. Now, we're on the fifth sacrifice of five that begins in the book of Leviticus. The first 
three sacrifices are called soothing aroma sacrifices. They are pleasing in God's sight. The last two sacrifices that we've been talking about, the reparation offering, uh, excuse me, the purification offering, which we talked about the last couple weeks, and today the guilt offering or the reparation offering uh, deal with specific manifestations of sin. The, the nation of Israel worshipped very specifically and regularly offering burnt offerings and peace offerings and grain offerings, these soothing aroma offerings. The last two, these two, the sin and guilt, had to do with specific instances, specific manifestations of sin. We have learned so far that sin brings death, it pollutes, it disrupts the peace, and we're going to find out today what else sin does. Um, I want to read the passage that we're going to look at today. So if you haven't already, um, I haven't, take your Bibles and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5 is where I want to direct your attention uh, as we come to the final of five sacrifices that are mentioned here in the Scriptures. And I want to read from Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14, to chapter 6, verse 7. All right, so Leviticus 5, verse 14. Let's read. The Lord said to Moses, when a, com- uh, when a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he is to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock one without defect and of the proper value in silver according to the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. He must make restitution for what he has failed to do in regard to the holy things, add a fifth of the value to that and give it to the priest, give it all to the priest, who will make atonement for him with the ram as a guilt offering and he will be forgiven. If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. He is to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the wrong he has committed unintentionally, and he will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about something entrusted to him, or left in his care, or stolen, or if he cheats him, or if he finds lost property and lies about it, or if he swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that people may do, when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen, or taken by extortion, or what was entrusted to him, or the lost property he found or whatever it was he swore falsely about. He must make restitution in full, add a fifth to the value of it, and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. And as a penalty, he must bring, it, bring to the priest, that is to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of these things he did that made him guilty." Uh, Let's pray for a moment, shall we, before we continue? Father, we have uh, read your word. It is your holy word, and yet we confess (laughs) this is one of the more mysterious parts of your book. It is not um, emotionally empathetic with us like the book of Psalms. It is not uh, winsome and poignant like Proverbs. It's not logically clear like the epistles. It's not uh, narratively intriguing like the Gospels. Uh, It is your law that you gave thousands of years ago to a people who lived in a different culture at a different time and under a different relationship with you. 
And yet you spoke this word. Very clearly it says, this is the word of the Lord. So having read what you said, we now speak to the author. We pray to you throughout our service because we are dependent upon you for help. And we're dependent upon you for help in understanding this and applying this and appreciating it. So grant us clarity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this section of Leviticus here focuses our attention on two different specific violations, uh, one against God and one against your neighbor. Uh, Verse 15 refers to sins and violations against the Lord's holy things. That's a sin against God. And then verse 1 of chapter 6 talks about sins offered against a neighbor. It says, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor... So uh, there's a section here about sinning against God and sinning against your neighbor. And what's unique about this offering is that you were supposed to bring a ram, but in addition to the ram, there was restitution here and uh, reparation. You had to repay for your violation and you had to add 20% to your repayment. And by this detail here, these details, we're, off, we're entering in and we're noticing here a new shade of our understanding of what the effects of sin. In fact, there are two things that I want you to see in the text this morning. First of all, I want you to notice sin often defrauds people. Sin often defrauds others. Sin pollutes. We talked about that last week. Sin pollutes. But this section of Leviticus tells us that sin defrauds. Now, the word defraud means to to take or to abuse something that belongs to someone else. Uh, This is very easy to trace on the human level. So, we're actually going to begin with the second half of this passage uh, in in, uh, chapter 6. In verses 1 through 3, he he identifies some specific behaviors that are all aimed at someone else. And specifically, they're aimed at their property. If you misuse, if you abuse, if you steal, if you lose someone else's property, you have defrauded them and therefore you are uh, guilty. Uh, Look at this here, verse 1. You can deceive your neighbor about something entrusted to you or left in your care. Um, This this is easy to understand. Imagine your neighbor is going away. Uh, He's got to go visit his brother and he says, Here, would you take care of my sheep? You say, yes, I'll be happy to take care of your sheep. And while he's gone, you sell them. And he comes back and he says, where are my sheep? And you say, sheep? What sheep? I don't know anything about any sheep. You have defrauded your neighbor and you are guilty of this. You have, you're deceiving him. Or, or maybe you just don't feign ignorance. Maybe you say, oh, those sheep, they were stolen. It was terrible. I'm sorry. Or a wolf came and they ate all your sheep. They left my sheep alone, but they ate all your sheep. They're gone. Defrauding. Or uh, verse 3 mentions here, well, this unfortunately is the end of that great biblical tradition, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's not in the Bible. Some of you thought it was. It's next to the verse that says, cleanliness is next to godliness. Second Opinions 14. Um, (laughs) Verse 3 if you find lost property and you lie about it or you swear falsely about it. These are sins having to do with, with uh, personal uh, property. 
what he is supposed to do. Well, actually, I should mention just one more here, even verse 4. Notice it says, uh, you have to return what you've stolen or taken by extortion. What's extortion? Extortion is where you take something from someone or their labor or what they own and you don't give them proper value for it. Um, all these crimes are, are mishandling someone else's possessions and if you do that, you are, according to verse 1, guilty. In fact, you are unfaithful to the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? Your sin against someone else is a manifestation of unfaithfulness to the Lord. We'll, we'll talk about that connection in a couple minutes. But you're guilty, and then you, you must bring a guilt offering. You uh, must repay what you owe, pay for all the sheep, add 20% as a reparation, and offer a sacrifice. And here, only a ram will do. Do you remember for all the other sacrifices, Moses would list different levels of sacrifice for your wealth or for your position. Here, only a ram uh, will do. Hmm. Now, what was the 20% for? What was the reparation for? Well, at minimum, it was to compensate the person for their loss. For example, uh, if you had sold somebody else's sheep, you've fleeced them. (laughs) And uh, you need to compensate them. That was too obvious, wasn't it? Okay. You need to uh, uh, um, repay them for what they've lost, uh, the the loss they've had of the value of the wool or what uh, the loss of the value of the meat with their, their sheep. Alan Ross argues actually that the 20% is not just to compensate them for the loss, but it's actually a sign of repentance. It's evidence that you recognize the damage that your lying and your cheating have, have caused. It, and you've really turned from it. You really have turned, turned from it. Do you remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, that wee little man in the New Testament? How did Zacchaeus testify to the fact that he really recognized what he was, had done was wrong and that he really did turn to Jesus and his life was going to be different? How did he, he repaid his debts plus what he says. Four times, if I've, if I've stolen, anybody, stolen from anybody, I'll, I'll re- give them a reparation of four times what I've stolen. Zacchaeus wasn't paying for his salvation. He was giving evidence to the fact that he was recognized what his sin had done, and he was, had turned from it. Now, if Ross is right, I think he is, here is proof, again, that the Old Testament sacrificial system is not interested in merely external conformity. Sometimes we think about this with the Old Testament law, that this is a very ritualistic form of worship. Um, all you did was go through the motions. If you did something bad, oh, I eh, crossed the line, here's a sheep. Here's the sacrifice. That's the way it is. Some people operate that way in Christianity and other religions too. And do whatever you want. Don't think about it. Then just come and offer your ram or pray your prayers or give your gifts or do your time in church. You'll be fine. But confession in the Bible that goes from the mind to the mouth and never goes through the heart is not very valuable in God's sight. This was a deeply felt ritual. Um, We can see this sin here required public confession. For these sins, actually, too, how how would you be found out about this? Or, Or how would these sins come to light? Most often they would only come to light through your confession. 
Your conscience would, would provoke you and you would, would confess what you've done and then offer this sacrifice and, and give the restitution and reparation. We know that even, in fact, because of what uh, verse 17 of chapter 5 says. Look what it says here. If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it. Now, why would a person then offer a sacrifice if they didn't know it? If they'd done something wrong and they didn't know it, what's, what's going on? How did this come to their mind? How did this come to their attention? I think... What's going on here is Moses is making allowance for people who have very tender consciences and, and are, are just thinking, I, I must have in some way violated one of the Lord's commands. I, I, I must have. They can't think of a specific instance. They can't identify it. They don't know about it. But, but, but God here is, is gracious and he's saying, Look, this is a matter of your conscience. It's okay. There is provision for that, even for those who have tender consciences. The Old Testament sacrifice is not merely external. It's not merely mechanical. It's, it's deeply involving your conscience and your confession and your repentance. It's a pattern that's set all the way through the Bible. So God holds people responsible for how they treat one another's property. Don't defraud one another. It makes you guilty. Now, this is another reminder of the corporate nature of our relationship with God. Uh, the principles are embedded here in, in the text. Uh, when the New Testament flowers, when the New Testament comes and it flowers and it opens it up, written on every petal is some one another command. Love one another, encourage one another, care for one another, admonish one another, sing to one another, pray for one another. Do you know that, that the roots of that are embedded here, even in the book of Leviticus, that flowers in the New Testament, but its roots are here even in uh, Leviticus. God is directly interested in how his people relate to one another. He expresses it here in Leviticus with commands about personal property. It blooms in the New Testament into soul care. I'm not sure what you'll be thinking about tonight when you go to your growth group, uh, what you'll think about the reason for why you're going. But Leviticus reminds us repeatedly over and over that, that your interest, that God is interested in, his, in your relationship with other people, His desire for you. He calls you to follow Him with other people. Under the Old Covenant, you care for one another's uh, tents and flocks and herds and fields. In the New Testament, you care for one another's burdens and joys and sorrows. Don't go to the ladies' Bible study tomorrow just for what you can get out of it. Just because you're hoping to, to be a smarter Christian. Go because it's God's will, it's God's great pleasure that you pursue Him together with other people. This is God's priority for you. And it's embedded here, even in the book of Leviticus. Uh, I'm in the process of, of doing a project for a class that I'm completing. And one of the things that I have to write a paper about is a time of suffering in my life. Uh, I've told you this story before, not for a long time, but soon after we got married, we moved to Dallas. Kathy got gravely ill with some uh, mysterious disease. Uh, didn't last uh, real long, but it necessitated a time of hospitalization. Uh, we were newly married, uh, 1,300 miles away from anybody that we knew uh, there in uh, Dallas, Texas. 
and I was thinking about this experience, and we, we spent a lot of time uh, at the time. We didn't know anybody. We, we prayed together. We read the Bible. We were desperately calling on God to help us. It was a financial disaster for us. Uh, it was a stressful uh, experience. And I was thinking about what happened. One of the ways that God answered, God did not drop $15,000 onto our kitchen table, which we actually didn't even own yet, uh, to, uh, uh, to help us through it. God didn't miraculously heal Kathy, but what he did is he provided people. They just swarmed out of the woodwork. We'd been to a church once. We visited a congregation, and the Sunday school class took a collection of money for us and sent it to us. Um, uh, Kathy's home church called her parents and said, uh, we'll pay for tickets. You, you fly down tomorrow. We'll pay for it. You go. Um, my home church, they did a special offering for us to provide money for us. Our neighbors brought us food. People that we didn't really know that well, but God surrounded us with, with people. This is how he works. This is the God who is. He calls us to love and serve and be encouraged with others. Here it's direct. Watch out for their sheep. The New Testament. Watch out for their souls. Care for them. Now, to this point in time here, I've probably not said anything that, that's too controversial or too difficult. You might not appreciate all the, the sin talk that we've done so far, but you know, this is a church, we read the Bible, we're not ashamed of what it says in its vocabulary of, of sin. Um, you probably can recognize that the, the first seven verses of chapter six, this sounds good. For an economy to survive, for a culture to survive, you've got to respect private uh, property. But before that, before we get to defrauding others, the passage talks about defrauding God, which is not something that we think about very much. I want to think with you about it here for a minute. Actually, this comes prior, and it's more crucial, this concept of defrauding God. Verse 15 says, When a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, now, in a few weeks, we will, we will jump full scale here into a description of Leviticus and its use of this word, holy things, as opposed to common things or clean things and unclean things. We're going to get into that vocabulary in great detail. Just for now, though, recognize he's talking about the fact that there are certain things that belong in a particular way to God. Uh, your neighbor owns a sheep. There are things that belong to God. And the most obvious set of, of holy things are things that are in uh, the temple that are dedicated to the Lord's use at the tabernacle. There were shovels that they would use to shovel out the ash from the uh, uh, altar. It was a holy shovel. Uh, and um, un, un, uh, people who were not priests, they were special objects and they were to be used by people set aside for it to do holy things. And if you used a holy thing for an unholy purpose, or you were not a set-apart person and using those things, you were, you were guilty. You had violate, committed this violation. For example, in the book of Second Chronicles, Uzziah the king tries to offer an, a sacrifice on a holy altar, and God uh, deems him guilty of violating holy things. Um, the Old Testament mentions other possible violations of holy things. It's a violation of the Lord's command to eat holy food. 
We'll talk about this in a few weeks. But some of the sacrifices that were brought, they weren't all consumed on the altar. Some of the meat, some of the grain went to the priests and it was part of their payment. And a priest would take the meat home and feed his family. And if you were not a member of the priest's family, you could not eat the holy meat. The meat had come to the priest from the worshiper to God to the priest and no one but the priest or his family would eat the holy food. Uh, In the book of Joshua, there's uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the conquest of the nation of Jericho, or the city-state of Jericho, right? And uh, what does God say to the people? Everything that is in the city belongs to me. The plunder is all mine, uh, except there's one guy whose name was Achan who stole some of it for himself, right? He took the gold, he took some of the gold, he took some of the fabric that he found, and he kept it for himself. It was God's stuff, and he took it. He he violated holy things. Now, from this point on in Leviticus, the Bible lays claim for God around certain things, and um, the Bible begins to identify more things that are the objects of his special concern. For example, if you had the leprosy in the Bible and you were cured, you had to bring a guilt offering. Why? Because while you were infected with leprosy, you were not allowed to enter the temple and uh, the tabernacle, and thus you were not offering God the worship that he deserves, and reparation had to be made. He, he lays claim to worship. He laid claim to the things in the tabernacle. He laid claim to the city of Jericho. He laid claim to the worship of those who are, had leprosy, and if you don't give it to God, you owe him this guilt offering. There are things that belong to God and we must treat them respectfully. In general, the Bible says that God deserves our allegiance. And when you don't give it to him, we defraud him. We are guilty. Now, what happens, interestingly, as the Bible continues, there are certain people and certain things over which God claims additional protection and additional authority. I'm not sure if they began to offer guilt offerings for violations of this, but look at, I want to show you a couple of verses, how God's authority or how God's claim expands in the Old Testament. Look with me, as a matter of fact, at Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. All right, it's on your blue sheet there. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. <laughs> That's a claim of authority, right, isn't it? But then notice specific what he does with his authority. God, who is the potentate of the universe, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Now that word alien should be translated immigrant. I know the word, the concept of immigration is complicated. There was no such thing as illegal immigration in the Old Testament. But as a Christian, this verse has to play a role in how you think about this issue that our Congress is debating and talking about. Uh, Be careful um, how you treat widows and orphans. In culture, they were the most vulnerable people. Who's the most vulnerable people in our culture? Be careful how you treat them because God has a special place in his heart for them. Or uh, look at Proverbs 22, 22. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder him. God's claiming here special care for the poor. They are, in a sense, becoming holy people to him. 
When you drop off items at Goodwill or go to the Salvation Army, I hope you're not just trying to unload extra things you don't need and you're glad to get them off your hands. I hope you're dropping there because, or shopping there because, because the God you worship loves the poor and so do the people who run this organization. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says to the Corinthians, you must avoid sexual immorality because your bodies have been bought by God, they're His. He claims special authority over your body. Your organs are not yours to do with what you want. They're God's. Don't defraud Him. In 1 Peter 3, Peter tells husbands, treat your wives well because the wives are God's. They're your co-heirs with the grace of God. Don't mess with God's heirs. Can can you see the logic here that's played out? It starts in Leviticus chapter 5. God's holy things don't defraud him. And then as the Bible continues, this circle of God's protection extends. God cares about more and more things. This is the logic. Read the book of Amos. Oh, it's a great book about God's claims. God in the book of Amos claims for himself the right as creator to determine how nations treat one another. And in the book of Amos, he says he condemns slavery. He condemns murdering the unborn. He condemns desecrating dead bodies. He condemns breaking treaties. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Christian nations of the world from the year 1400 to 2000 or so would have read the book of Amos? God's claims, what he says. Now, I wonder how this strikes you, that these are God's concerns. Probably most of it uh, sounds, sounds pretty good, maybe except for the sexual purity part, which is a little personal. But, I mean, who's against caring for orphans and widows, right? Who's not for that? Ebenezer Scrooge, but nobody likes Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, Leviticus argues, and Christians have claimed from the beginning, that our responsibility to care for these things and these people is only rightly founded on reverence for God. That's why misusing your neighbor, mistreating your neighbor's possessions is an offense against God. The two are inexplicably linked, uh, inextricably linked. It's biblical, but it's not really a mode of thinking that we're used to. Uh, We tell our children when they're little in the nursery, I'm sure this morning, there's a a little toddler who's gone up to somebody else and grabbed something out of his hand. And what's your tendency? Now, be nice. Be nice. And that's a fine thing to say. Maybe it's more biblical to say, for the Lord's sake, be nice. Right? Reverence for God that manifests itself in reverence for others. This is the chain that the Bible makes, this connection. In fact, the reverence for God is first and primary, and it manifests itself in how we care for others' possessions. This is not a, 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 something that we're cultivating in our own culture. Uh, this week, um, I read about an article that was published recently in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It was called The Me Curriculum in Georgia Education. It's by a man by the name of Mark Bauerlein. Georgia, the state of Georgia, has a new writing curriculum for junior high students, and it makes students write, which is great. We're happy to have students write. But it makes them write mostly, chiefly, and primarily about themselves. Um, they're given a classic piece of literature. Read this and then write. They're not asked to write about the plot, about the story, about the facts, about the details. They're asked to write about how they feel about the story. 
and what they would imagine if they were in the story and what might happen to them if they were at the center of the story like apparently they're supposed to be at the center of the universe. For example, when studying the civil rights uh, movement, they're asked to imagine what they would do if they were involved. What would you feel? What would your life be like? What would your future prospects involve? What would you do to fix it? He goes over lots of examples, but basically this writing course is not about ideas and events and other writings. It's about students themselves. It's all about me. Bauerlein claims this is something that he sees repeatedly in American education, the idea that first and foremost, uh, you are the most important element of any event that happens and how it affected you and what happens to you. This does not cultivate reverence for holy things. <laughs> uh, practically, it's actually going to undermine how orphans and widows and the poor and other people's properties will fare too in the world, but that's, that's somewhat an ancillary issue. Christians have argued repeatedly from the beginning, we must revere God and revering Him regarding holy things. His holy name will manifest itself in how we care for others, in that we care for others. We ask first and foremost about everything, not how do I feel about this? Or we ask first and foremost, what does God say about this? What is his evaluation? What does he say in his word about this event, this circumstance, this person, this quality? We are interested in giving him his first due as our creator, but also recognizing, God, you are great in wisdom and power and love. How would you teach us to think about this? thing that we see and we're experiencing. When we lived in Dallas, the, the pastor of our church um, was, uh, we attended was a man by the name of Neil Ashcraft. Um, he's a fine man. His son pastors a little church you might have heard up of. It meets up in Mannheim, uh, and Ephrata, and Lancaster, and Harrisburg, and York. Uh, we were members of Schofield Memorial Church. When we were there, uh, Neil Ashcraft had been the pastor for 27 years. Uh, Neil Ashcraft is a gracious, godly, gentle man. You would want him to be your pa- I would want him to be your pastor. He's retired. He's not available, so I'm sorry. Um, I'm never, I never saw it happen, but what I am told is that at elders' meetings, the men would, would get together and they'd talk about issues. They would come up, they would discuss them, and they'd talk and talk. And Neil would sit and listen. And, and at a certain point, the men would turn and would look at him, and he would give his opinion. Well, I think that what we ought to do is this. And most of the time, that's what they did. Why? Not because he was a domineering man, but because he had a 27-year history of graciously, wisely shepherding the people. His voice was worth hearing. In an infinitely greater way, we turn our attention to God first. And beyond this call to revere God's things and God's name is is the holy God himself who is worthy of our allegiance. God, what do you say about the poor in my neighborhood? God, what do you think about my sex life? God, what do you say about the widow who lives next door to me? What do you say about my wife and the quality of the relationship that I'm supposed to have with her? Leviticus is laying before us this principle that is all the way through the Bible, God first, God first, and what we think and how we live and what we value and what we love. 
There are two different planes in this text. There's this human plane. I will respect your property, the things that you own, but I will do it because of God and, and my reverence for, for him. The two are, are connected. And, and when we lumber through life, we, we, we remember this and we see we often sin by defrauding people. Now, there's a second thing. The text tells us something else important about, uh, about sin. It tells us that sin makes us debtors. Sin makes us debtors. Uh, there are images for sin in the Bible. Sin, again, is pollution. Sin here is, uh, this is a financial image. Payment must be offered. Defrauding others, whether it be of their property or God of his just reverence, puts you in his debt. Now, at a human level, like in chapter 6, uh, sometimes this works out in easily recognizable terms. You can see the debt involved here. You break someone's equipment. You lose uh, what they entrusted to you. <coughs> you steal someone's labor or their products. What should you do? The Bible says, pay them back. It's a principle that extends all the way through the Old Testament into the New this is uh, the passage. This passage demonstrates that one of the ways that you express your understanding of the severity of what you've done is by, with a willing and glad mind, being ready to pay back what you owe, what you've broken, what you've done. Uh, two parties. Let's imagine here two parties. Um, uh, one is the, the guilty one and one is the offended one. This person borrowed a lawnmower and uh, destroyed it because he put... Um, Kool-Aid in the gas tank. Okay, so you've got to go. There's got to be this reconciliation about this exploding, delightfully smelling, but still exploded gas uh, lawnmower. So uh, sometimes as, as an act of, of grace, if you're wise, on the way to reconciliation, you recognize there's, there's debt involved that's got to be taken care of. Sometimes as an act of grace, the offended party can forgive the debt I forgive what you owe me for the lawnmower. Now, the guilty party can never forget that, can never presume upon that, can never take that for granted. He, he goes with the intention of, of paying. Both parties have to keep that in mind. Sometimes the debt can be forgiven, sometimes it can't and it shouldn't, but it cannot be ignored. Often the issue that the New Testament addresses are, are not financial but it still borrows this language of indebtedness. You know the word forgive. The Greek word forgive means to lift burdens. Forgiveness means you bear the burden of the offense of others. You release them from the burden, from the debt that they owe you, the moral debt that they owe you because of how they have offended you. The strength to do that comes from actually what the Bible says about our sin debt toward God. What do we do about God? What do we do? What do we do about, how do we repay him? If God has a shovel, and I destroy God's shovel, I can, I can buy a new shovel, and I can give 20%. I can do that. But what, huh. what do we do about the fact that we owe God because we have not given him his due as a sovereign, as our creator? It's impossible. What's 20% of your life? Here in the text, though, there is provision. It is God's provision. He says, bring a ram and you'll be forgiven. That's God's provision. Even if you don't know exactly what you've done, bring the ram. This is the solution. This is the answer to a guilty, foggy conscience. Bring the ram. As the Bible unfolds, we discover that the ultimate 
ram, is the ultimate provision is not a ram. It is, in fact, his son. There's a passage that is quoted often. We know this verse. In fact, Isaiah 53, which is written down there, is one of the most often quoted passages in the New Testament. And look how it describes what the Lord Jesus did. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, here it is, right from Leviticus 5 in Isaiah. The Lord has made the Lord Jesus Christ a guilt offering. He will see his offering and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus paid our debt. We use that phrase a lot. Here's where it comes from. Leviticus 5. We are God's debtors. And Jesus is the payment. He is God's ultimate provision. He paid the penalty for sin. I spoke earlier about God's concern for the poor. It's real. It's significant. God is concerned for the poor. He's not just concerned about the financially poor, but the spiritually impoverished too. Are there any debtors in the room? We're destitute in our sin, but he has come and he has paid what we owed. In fact, he's credited us with his own righteousness. There's more financial language. And he invites everyone to come, to come. For all the ways that you have defrauded him, come and be forgiven. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are thankful to you because uh, you very clearly show us... um, how we have offended against you and what we have, have done. Father, we confess there's, there's, uh, when, when the, the scriptures talk about uh, defrauding others of their property, we, we know what, what that is like. We have been foolish and careless with other people's things. Everybody in this room can think of an instance in their life where that is true. But deeper and more importantly, Father, we confess that we have been foolish and careless with the things you claim for your own that are your due as our creator and as our sovereign. We are guilty. Thank you, Father, that you have made provision for us through the Lamb. It was your will to crush the Lord Jesus and you have made his life a guilt offering. He paid the debt that we owed. And we are grateful to you, also thankful. Help us, help us now to walk gladly and rejoicingly as forgiven debtors. We pray in Christ's name, amen.